Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. You're listening to Living the Dream, and you're just joined with Dave today. You can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. And this is episode one of a new project that I'm provisionally titling, but I'll probably keep this title, Marx's Textbook. It's a pretty simple premise. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a mainstream economics textbook, in this case macroeconomics, by Little Boy, the 2013 edition. Each episode, I will summarise one chapter, probably, from that textbook. Then what I'll do is I will use Marx's critique of political economy. So that's the work that he does in Capital, or three volumes in the theory of surplus value, the Grundrisse, a contribution to the critique of political economy. And I will use that to build an alternative understanding of the subject matter that has been raised by the macroeconomics textbook. And my first suspicion is that Marx will just not give us different answers, but rather will kind of guide us to ask different questions. So why am I doing this? I'm doing it because I guess I think at some level ideas do matter. Now, I certainly don't think that ideas drive society, and that's been one of the constant arguments we've been trying to make on this show, that we can't explain the condition that Australian society is in just because of bad people and bad ideas. Rather, with Marx, I think that ideas are kind of the projection in our minds of our experiences of living within a definitive, definite society and assemblage of social relations, a material reality. But I think ideas work to limit the possibilities that we think we can achieve and uh, enforce a social order in a particular way. No more, And that's what the concept of ideology is about. And no more than economics, which is really a master ideology of our society. I think we exist, was it nine, almost ten years, into what we problematically call the great... Um, the financial crisis, great financial crisis, the GFC, global financial crisis, not great financial crisis. And potentially we are years or months off another downturn. And in that moment, we're going to have to try to understand what's going on in the world and talk to others as we try to engage in social struggles to improve our lives and move out of this society and create a different kind of way of human beings can live together. And that involves both confronting the ideology of economics, but also I think as well developing a radical top-to-bottom understanding of what the capitalist mode of production is. And this is something that Marx's work, I think, can really help us with. Now, I want to be really clear. This is not a how-to-read capital volume one, two, three, theories of surplus value guide. That's not the project. I want this to be useful for people who are reading Capital, but I also want this to be useful for people who have no intention of reading Capital. Capital. But what they want is a kind of easy way they can better access argument against the dominant ideas you encounter all the time, but also understand the society that you live in. It's also the 150th anniversary of Capital, and I want to do this as kind of a way of making Capital live today. 
I feel that despite uh, the kind of omnipresence of the term Marxist or Marxism amongst the left, the radical left, anti-capitalist, whatever, people in Australia in those circles, I don't often, often think have a really good understanding of what Marx was on about, including people that like to use that label, Marxist. And I think part of it relates to how we view these texts. Unfortunately, there can be a bit of a theological attitude when it comes to Marx's work, where these are looked as basically the equivalent of the Bible, holy texts, which one deals deeply into each individual word to see if they can find some kind of magic written on the page. I think this is the completely wrong approach. Marx didn't finish Capital. He only published the first volume. Um, he, there's also a good indication, if you look at Heinrich's work, that Marx was involved in rewriting huge chunks, or at least considering rewriting huge chunks of Volume 1. So it's an unfinished assemblage of notes. I think we should see it as more of a research project, an attempt by a partisan, radical view to understand the capitalist mode of production so they can overcome it. And that's how I think we should read it. We should read it as a set of tools that we can pick up and grab and use it to understand the society that we're in. I also am kind of a bit excited, I think, by the challenge. And, you know, I've read, been reading Capital, I guess, on and off, maybe even continuously for about 10 years now. There's a lot of material there, and I find that I probably linger over certain chapters and speed through other chapters and I think I'm looking forward to this kind of challenge of making it force me read capital differently and I think also there's going to be things that are raised by contemporary economics due to the nature of the contemporary global capitalist economy that are non-existent or only partially exist in Marx's original work and at that point I'm going to have to either extrapolate from Marx or I'm going to look at other people that are working in that tradition so that's the attempt um, that I plan to do here. I hope you find it useful. Now, there's 16 chapters in Little Boy's Macroeconomics 2013 edition, and I guess I want these to be relatively short episodes, probably about half an hour each. So that might mean that I'll do about 16 episodes, but when possible and I can roll two into one, I'll roll two into one there as well. Um, I don't want them to be much longer because I'm planning these these podcasts are things that you can listen to on the way to work, at work, depending where you work. If you work in an office, drive a car, maybe you can do that. If you work in the service industry, it might be a little bit, bit harder. So the plan is to be there short, um, engagements with the ideology, and helping us develop our own collective tools for collective self-emancipation. Just a word, I think, before I go, I go any further about why I've picked this textbook in particular, because there's a world of macroeconomics textbooks out there. Um, first of all, it was close to hand and I didn't want to spend any more money, but there are at least two things that I really like about Little Boy's textbook, um, and they help what I want to do here. Firstly, I think Little Boy writes in a way where he really attempts to draw out the conceptual nature of macroeconomics and not just hide it behind a mathematical exposition. So I like that. But also as well, I think you can't in any way see Little Boy as some kind of free marketeer or neoliberal if, if they're terms that you like to use. Rather, if you look at his work, I think he's more of a social democrat. And I think this is really useful because sometimes the critique of macroeconomics is really just a critique of a particular flavour of macroeconomics. But also because it forces us to deal with an argument that's really present right now in Australia, right now. And that is we often hear from the left, particularly the trade unions, maybe the Greens, the, the ALP, that 
we should do something because it is good for the economy. So we get this argument that says, well, we shouldn't cut taxes, but we should increase wages because that'll increase demand and that is good for the economy. So in this presentation, there's like a conceptual split between profit on one hand and the economy, which is a bigger, more neutral force out there. Marx, on the other hand, really rejects the idea that there is something called the economy. Rather, what he wants to talk about is the capitalist mode of production. And for him, that's an organisation of humanity's creative metabolism with the earth for the purpose of accumulating profit. There's no economy for him separate from that that aims to accumulate capital, to take profit, reinvest it, make capital. So that's going to kind of, you know, using Little Boy's textbook really kind of throws me up against the arguments that I want to deal with. All right, so there we go. I guess the other thing to note too is I'm going to be recording these in little grabs here and there is my lunch breaks and at night after the kids have gone to sleep. So there might be some kind of variation in background noise too. Hopefully that doesn't impact the sound quality too much. So at the beginning of the first volume of Capital, Marx notes that beginnings in science are always difficult. And I think the challenge whenever we start out is two questions. What are we looking at? How do we look at it? And this is certainly something that Little Boy does in the opening chapter. He asks, what is macroeconomics? And he says, what macroeconomics is, it's the study of the economy on a whole. So trying to look at how all the different pieces of the economy fit together and work. Pretty early on, he identifies that what it's also about is looking at how um, policy can or cannot improve the functioning of that economy. He identifies that there's a distinction between macroeconomics and microeconomics. And the distinction is as follows. He says that in microeconomics, the assumption is that the market tends to work, that any disturbances that happen on the level of microeconomics play out and are solved by the dynamic of the market. On the level of macroeconomics, on the other hand, he says, disturbances tend to grow and have negative impacts across the economy on a whole. He also says that there's a disjunction or a distinction between micro and macroeconomics in the sense that macroeconomics is not just microeconomics added together, that there's a difference between the big and the small, and the difference is because one's big and one's small. So the kind of analogy or metaphor, whatever the correct term is, he uses is if you have something small, like you prick your finger and it bleeds a little bit, your body's going to look after that, you have a massive traumatic wound, things are probably going to be tough for you. He says what macroeconomics as a study does is attempt to make models that try to map the repeating patterns that go on in the macroeconomy. And then as a discipline, it evolves by people observing the world, test looking at their models and constantly updating them. So he describes it as, you know, take someone's metaphor, it's a spiral staircase. It seems to go round and round in circles, but is slowly uh, making its direction somewhere. Oh, at the beginning as well, he identifies a really important kind of stance. He says economic growth is important because economic growth 
gives us both the ability to improve our material lives, but also the capacities to deal with environmental and social challenges. He then says it's important to make a distinction between what he calls positive macroeconomics and normative macroeconomics. <coughs> so his argument is that positive macroeconomics is the study of what is in front of us, how the economy actually works. Normative economics is the attempt to say the economy should work in a particular way, to steer it towards a direction. And I think this is an attempt by Little Boy to kind of rest macroeconomics away from the uh, free market conclusions that have often been associated with it. Rather, towards the end of the opening chapter, he says there are multiple different things that a society might, be, might consider good. Um, some of these might be individual freedom, efficiency, social equality, environmental sustainability. And he says what we can do as macroeconomics economists is advise um, government policy, which of these things we can aim towards, but there will always be a trade-off. Not all those conditions can be solved. And he locates the macroeconomist uh, macro in the kind of democratic world of debate. So what do we get there? There is a thing called the economy. It has a certain regulatory, regulatory internal dynamic to it. It can be studied. There's not necessarily any normative conclusion that that fits with. It doesn't necessarily tell you what kind of society you have to have. But a study of the economy will tell you if you try to achieve certain different things, it'll have positive or negative trade-offs, and therefore you can't please everyone all the time. Also implicit here as well is that there is something that government policy can do that'll create disturbances in the economy. So the role of the macroeconomist is therefore to also advise the state, to advise policy, that if you do this, there might be all these unforeseen negative consequences, despite your good intentions. To summarise, there is something called the economy. Macroeconomics is the study of that thing. It is separate from something called microeconomics, and they have different principles that create the basic assumptions about how those two things function. It's possible to know this thing called the, um, the economy by observing it. Macroeconomics as a discipline is a constantly evolving and progressing study of this world. There's no necessary normative conclusion that this leads to, but there are consequences for choices. We exist within a democratic political space, and within that democratic political space, we can make choices as a society about what we prefer. The role of the macroeconomist is to advise us about some of the negative consequences, maybe highlight what is positive, but also bring us aware that there are trade-offs from all these different goals. So that's the mainstream approach. What's Marx's take on these questions and these issues? Well, I guess the first starting point is unlike contemporary economics, Marx doesn't have a notion of some kind of ahistorical thing called the economy. Rather, what he's interested in, and he articulates, is that human history has seen a set or series or variety of different modes of production, each one distinct 
And by modes of production, what he means here is different historical assemblies of the material productive forces and relations of production. So that means different assemblies of technological levels, skills, techniques of work, and also the way that the social relations and forms of organising those all sit together. And unlike the, the economists who see an ahistorical economy that's just kind of there, important to society, but also then separate from it, um, Marx is interested in the way that this mode of production constitutes the very real foundation that the totality of society is built on. The classic presentation that he makes of this is actually in the uh, preface contribution to the critique of political economy. And I think it's probably worth reading in full. The general conclusion at which I arrived and which, once reached, became the guiding principle of my studies can be summarised as follows. In the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations which are independent of their will namely relations of production, appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. The totality of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which corresponds definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. At a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or, this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework of which they operated hitherto. From forms of development of productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. In studying such transformations, it is always necessary to distinguish between the material transformation of the economic conditions of production, which can be determined with the precision of natural science, and the legal, political, religious, artistic or philosophic, in short, ideological forms in which men become consciousness of this conflict and fight it out. Just as one does not judge an individual by what he thinks about himself, so one cannot judge such a period of transition by its consciousness, but on the contrary, this consciousness must be explained from the contradictions of material life, from the conflict existing between the social forces of production and the relations of production. In other parts of Marx's work, he also frames this contradiction as one between classes as well. So there's already a lot here. So reject this idea that there's some kind of ahistoric thing called an economy that is true to all human societies, as if it was gravity. And that's not just you know, kind of hyperbole here in the sense that mainstream economics really wants to make that claim, that economics is something as fundamental to the structure of reality as, um, as physics or, or gravity or anything like that, to see their work as real science. So Marx is rejecting that and says, no, 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 no. Um, what we've got to look at is specific 
modes of production. And these modes of production are historically specific sets of how we make things and how we organise make things. And also that they are internally contradictory and that these contradictions are antagonisms that push that society towards being overcome and another one being generated. So he frames that in a particular way here, but also in his work he frames it as class. And so class is a funny concept as well. In Australia we often talk about class as if it's just some kind of a question about culture, you know, what level of education, do you like wrestling, do you like opera, or just, just in a question of income. But for Marx, class is something else. Class is a relationship between people determined by where they sit in this mode of production. And we'll go into that in, in more detail. But particularly for capitalism, he argues that there's a general tendency where all people are placed in one of two classes. So either capitalists, those people that own capital and get their living from that, or a working class, those people who sell their... their um, their ability to work, their labour power for an income. And also, in his work, he also includes landlords, and we'll talk about rent and those kind of things more later. So it's this kind of contradiction between classes that will propel it further. In the beginning of the Grundrisse, he goes so far as to say that this means it's kind of ridiculous to try to talk about some kind of ahistorical approach to production or distribution or con con consumption, because production, distribution, consumption, exchange are always shaped and specific to that mode of production itself. Indeed, he makes some really good points where he says, like, Economics of the time would often start with some kind of Robinson Crusoe figure, some you know, individual who's isolated from the rest of society who then makes some you know, choices about how they want to spend their economic activity. And you can see that in um, contemporary economics in the sense that they do the same thing, where they, base, they basically go, well, let's imagine the world through having a whole set of independent rational actors and we then just aggregate their behaviour. And Marx said, well, even this notion of the individual is itself a product of a specific mode of production, the capitalist mode of production, that it's only because you exist in a world where uh, everything has become a commodity and all relations are mediated by money can you then imagine this kind of individual who is separate from the rest of the social body. It's a pretty interesting point, like the assumed individuality of the liberal individual that um, fits under, under mainstream economics is actually a product of the development of the capitalist economy. Similarly, in Marx, you won't find any split between macro and micro. Rather, what his work is an attempt to do is to understand capitalism as a totality, so a complicated uh, system where all the different points uh, interrelate and precondition each other, but at the same time that this totality is driven by its core social relations. So in his method, he starts by looking uh, at these social relationships through a kind of theoretical microscope by saying, well, what's the cell form of capitalism? He starts with the commodity and then working the contradictions of the commodity builds a bigger, bigger picture. So there's no division between macro and micro, but rather an attempt to understand this totality that is then broken and riven by antagonisms. I think there's some kind of um, implications for this already. So already what we're seeing then is an argument that if you want to transform society, you need to transform the everyday and the, um, gr the grand as well, the macro and the micro, because they are integrated parts of a 
broader totality. And he also talk, talks about the way that the individual who exists in this isn't just some free-floating choosing agent, but is driven by these broader social forces. So in Capital, he talks about the capitalist as the trager or bearer of the capital relation. So individual capitalists aren't, you know, kind of bad money bags-like figures, but rather are just acting out the dynamics they live in. And this means that even though Marx sees each mode of production as being historically specific, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. Rather, what his work is about is saying that it is possible to understand that each mode of production has its own, what he calls laws, but I think we could say is dynamics or tendencies, that within them they operate and they push in a certain way. And he has a pretty... um heavy or restrictive understanding of this where he thinks the capacity for reform in capitalist society is quite low because these dynamics inevitably drive in a certain way. So just because something is historically specific doesn't mean it doesn't have dynamics that kind of push in in a certain way. What about method? Well, Marx makes an argument that you can't really understand anything by just starting by looking at the complicated picture of facts or data because you don't know what any of those facts or data mean. So if you just started with GDP, population numbers, these kind of things, that's just kind of the surface numbers, but they don't really tell you much about the actual content of that society. So he said what is kind of necessary is that in the mind you have to go through a process of abstraction to try to understand what is the core basic social relationships. So if you want to understand population, you have to start working out, well, go, well, how to, well, what are the relationships of classes? Do commodities exist? How are things distributed? Going to boil it down to those social relations. And once you do that, you can then rebuild the entire picture of that society, logically layer upon layer upon layer. So he says you start with the concrete, the amount of facts, then in the mind you have to go through a process of abstraction to work out what is those base social relations, then you rebuild the picture. Um, this is a really difficult thing to do, and if you read uh, his work, what you see is he kind of starts from those basic social relations, and each step he adds another layer onto it, and it complicates it and changes what came before. So he'll start with going, okay, I'm going to start with commodity. What is that? Then factor in, in money, then factor in capital, then factor in wage labour, then different kinds of capital, then how capital works. And so totality, then tendency for the rate of profit to, you know, to equalise, then finance, and each element is kind of building from that structure. So it means it's, it's rejecting this kind of um, positivist approach of mainstream economics and requiring us to do a form of, um, of abstraction and, and heavy lifting, which is a challenge. And I guess the implication of this too as well then fits in about, well, what's the point of this knowledge? If for the mainstream economist... Uh, the whole question was, okay, there's this thing called the economy, you can understand it, and then you advise the state to react to it. Marx is saying something else. As you can see from that quote from the preface to a critique of political economy, he thinks the mode of production is the, is the real structure that determines the society overall. So for Marx, the state is not some kind of independent... Um, agent that we can have good policy out there that can then act on um, the economy. Rather, he will argue in different ways that the state is essentially a product of this capitalist mode of production and it works 
to both ensure the political and practical dominance of a ruling class. It works to reproduce that society as a whole, so to reinforce property relations, act to make sure there's you know, a smooth uh, functioning system. And then also um, in his, some of his journalistic work, particularly around France, so the 18th Brumaire talks about how the state can kind of have an interest of its own too. But that interest is contingent and embedded in the broader mode of production itself. So the point of his theory is certainly not that you can develop good policy to act through the state. Rather, what it's aimed to is this class antagonism. Um, Marx, at a number of different points, basically says that the theoretical work that he's doing is just kind of summing up what's already happening out there, concentrating it into a clearer form so the struggles that are already existing can have a better understanding of where they will be propelled necessarily to go. At this stage, we can see that what we're talking about is two fundamentally different things. Mainstream economics or macroeconomics assumes there is this thing called the economy, that we could know it, that um, essentially the economy is an ahistorical force that is infrequently threatened by the possibility of slump or crisis. And what the economists can do is help advise the state to mitigate these crises, but also to help us make choices as a society about which direction we would like to go. Well, for Marx, there's no such thing. There are specific modes of production. These modes of production are antagonistic and contradictory. They have a class antagonism that goes within them. This basically determines how the society as a whole functions. And he allies himself with a specific project that is aimed at overturning that social order and generating an alternative, um, which for him is obviously communism. And you know, that is the, the vision that this project is embedded into. So that's our starting point. I hope you found that useful. Uh, I've, it's roughly about half an hour, so, so that's good. <laughs> I will be putting these out um, as often as I can. Um, would really like any feedback, drop it on the blog or hit me up on Twitter at with sober sensors. Um, obviously, these are summations, so there's things that are missed out and it's kind of done on the fly. But I hope you find it useful. In the next couple of weeks, we'll proceed to the next chapter, which is going to be talking about the different approaches to why a capitalist economy grows. All right. Well, uh, take care and lots of love.
She's writing in the style of any wrong 